0: I don't know how far we're going to get uh, in this passage. I might uh, have to do a two-weeker on this, but uh, I think what I'm going to do is read um, verses 1 to, let's see here, 1 through 7 to begin with, and if we can get beyond that, we'll read read 8 and following when we come to it. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely, My paths, his feet, have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer... Him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Well we'll stop there for the time being. And uh, what I want to talk about today is the trouble that comes in our lives, and hopefully we'll talk a bit more about how we can deal with that. And that's what we'll be talking about maybe over the next two weeks if I don't make it all the way through. But two points I want to make today. First, I want to highlight the cause of trouble, And then I want to talk about a couple of reactions to trouble. We'll look at the cause of trouble. We'll certainly get through that today. This was written about 200 years before it happens. So the events that are being described here are going to happen about 200 years later. So Isaiah is prophesying in the sense that he's foretelling the future or God is giving him these words to say to the people He is talking to them uh, about a leader. This is verses 2 through 4. This this world leader that's going to appear on the stage of history who will topple the world order. He's going to shake everything up. Now the question being asked here or answered here is not who is this person? Who is this person that's going to come and shake up the whole world order? But who brought this leader onto the stage of history to shake up the world order? The answer to who is this person that's going to come and shake up the world order is Cyrus the Great. We find out in chapters 44 and 45 where he's mentioned by name 200 years before he comes. So Cyrus the Great is the one that is going to come And he's going to conquer more of the then-known world than had been conquered up to that point in history. And you can see how it's described here. Nations are given up before him. He tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his swords, uh, stubble with his bow. He pursues them, and he he passes on safely, paths his feet have not trod. So he's going wherever he wants to go safely. You know nothing can stand in his path. He's he's just like a steamroller, going through the then-known world, conquering it. Now the question is that is being asked in this in this passage, uh, expressed in verse two: Who stirred up this one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? And then the question again is raised in verse four: Who has performed and done this thing? Not only. Who has raised up Cyrus, but who is the one who calls the generations from the beginning? So not only is he in control of this person named Cyrus who's coming, but all the generations. He is the one, whoever this is, he is the one who is sovereign over everything, every generation and every nation. There's not one square inch over which he's not uh, sovereign. And of course the answer is, it is the Lord. It's, it's emphatic the way he says it. I, the Lord. In fact, the word Lord there is Yahweh, which means I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. Talking about his self-determination, eternity. I, I am, I am the one, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am he. So God's not, uh, God's not, uh, Hiding what he's doing here, he's making it very clear that he's the one that is causing this this disturbance in the world. God is sovereign; he governs everything that happens by his providence. It's an old word, word providence. We don't use it much anymore. Uh, usually, we know it if we've learned our catechism. You know, we thought, we learn about God's providence and providence is, according to our catechism, uh, God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. That's the larger catechism answer to that question. Now, God is in control of everything that happens. There's not one, one rebel atom in the universe that is not under his control. If there were a grain of sand that was out from under the control of God, then God wouldn't be God. By definition, he is, he is ruling and reigning over everything. Now this includes all the things that we, we believe are good things that happen to us. For example, Matthew 5 tells us that he makes the sun rise on the, on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Sometimes the rain is good and sometimes we wish we didn't have so much. But whoever we are, uh, God in his providence provides that. And it rains when he wants it to rain. Uh, not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So even the birds, God knows when they fall. He knew about the, the bird that my dog caught and had in the garage that I left sitting there for several days because I didn't realize it until the smell got too great. God knew about that poor bird and the possums that she drags up every now and again. God knows them all. but And in, in even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's Matthew 10. God, That's amazing that God knows, you know, there's billions of people on the planet. God knows the number of hairs on the head of every person. So even, so God's obviously knowledgeable he knows what's going on and and we know that we believe that all these good things are given to us by God but it's also true that we believe that God is sovereign over the things that we believe might not be so good things that cause us trouble or difficulty in our lives one only needs to turn to the book of Job to see that this is true God allows lots of bad things to happen to Job and it wasn't because he was being punished for his sin He was actually a very righteous man. God had his purposes there, and you can read about it. And there are many other places in Scripture where it talks about the fact that God is not only sovereign over the good things that we like in our lives, but sometimes the difficult, well, all the time, the difficult things, even those things, are under his sovereign control. Everything is under his sovereign control. Verse 5, you see there, what Cyrus' coming did to the nations. It struck fear into them. It says there, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. So Cyrus' coming was not perceived as a good thing by many people uh, in the then-known world. But God was sovereign over Cyrus. He was the one that stirred him up. Now, as my friend Ricky Jones said in a sermon on this passage, he said, This is big-boy theology. This is, this is not for the faint of heart. It's not something that we might be comfortable with. It might not be even something that we like. I know there have been books written that said, uh, you know, God is not sovereign. You know, you can't have a good God and a sovereign God because bad things happen to good people sometimes. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. God is always good and God is always sovereign. That's a difficult thing to grasp. might be impossible in our minds to grasp it and truly understand how that works in the world. Uh, Also, we also know that the Bible affirms that God is not only sovereign, but mankind is responsible. We're responsible for our actions. Cyrus was responsible for his actions, uh, even though God was sovereign over those actions. How that works... It's a bit mysterious, it's hard to grasp. But the Bible affirms both God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. And that's big boy theology. Hard to grasp, sometimes hard to accept, but that's what the Bible teaches. Now to bring it home to our world, as we think about it's easy to think about Cyrus the Great, but what about numerous terrorist attacks that have happened this week? God was sovereign over that. He allowed that. How about when a white supremacist walks into the AME church in Charleston and shoots nine people? God was sovereign over that. He allowed that to happen. What about the ruling on Friday the Supreme Court legalizes same-sex marriages in, in the United States? God is sovereign over that. What about the illness that you're dealing with, the cancer that that uh, you may uh, be enduring or a loved one might be uh, going through. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over everything. He allowed us each and every one to get up this morning. God allowed me to get up this morning and take a shower, get dressed, and drink a Coke Zero. He's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over hurricanes. We're going to celebrate 10 years since Katrina here pretty soon. God was sovereign over that. Now, as I said before, this does not absolve individuals of responsibility for their actions. They'll be held accountable for murder, etc. Those, and those two truths must hang together. But God is in control. Now, sometimes it seems that God's not in control. Sometimes it seems that humans are going to get away with it, and they're not held responsible for their actions. And sometimes it seems like God is not good when these bad things happen why would he allow that well his purposes are beyond knowing and are more complex and multi-layered than we can grasp you just think about hurricane Katrina you know some people got famously got on the news and said it was god's judgment on the coast specifically new orleans thankfully we didn't get pegged in that but you know god's judgment on the that sinful city well that's a uh, that's a bit of an overreach. It's a bit simplistic to say that because righteous people suffered in the storm as well as wicked people and so, a lot of people who were somewhere in the middle. You know, the rain fell on the just and the unjust in those hours. So you can't say that it's just God's judgment. Well, it might be. It might be God's judgment and God's salvation. God can use a hurricane to bring judgment on someone and bring salvation to another. Same event. And you know you've seen it. You've seen good things come as a result of the hurricane. Some people's lives were changed for the better because of the hurricane. Some people's lives were not changed for the better for the hurricane. It was all part of God's purposes, multi-layered purposes that, that are beyond figuring out. God's wisdom is not like our wisdom. It's amazing when you start trying to get your head around it, which is impossible to do. You'll blow your mind trying to figure out God's purposes. The the coming of Cyrus was certainly a judgment on certain nations in the world. But for Israel... It was the means through which they went back to their homeland because Cyrus had a different foreign policy than the Babylonians who had sent them into exile. Cyrus's foreign policy was to let people go back to their homeland, let them rebuild their temples, let them flourish wherever however they wanted to do that. And so that was a real blessing for the Israelites, something that caused the, the, the nations to fear, and I'm sure some of the Israelites were afraid of what Cyrus was doing, But they benefited greatly from it, and the Lord used it to send his people back to Jerusalem and even had permission to rebuild the temple. Now, we do not know God's purposes uh, to the good or the trouble that comes into our lives. We we believe he is sovereign over it all. And this should affect the way that we react to trouble. Now, I'm just going to briefly say, I want to go into more detail next week, but you have two reactions here. We read about one reaction, and that's to turn to idols. And it's quite comical. This is the way we naturally react and are tempted to react in verses 5 and, and through 8. Uh, it gives you the picture of people. You know, they hear that Cyrus is coming. And so they all get together, and they have a pep rally. Be strong. Let's, let's buck up. Let's, uh, let's get together, and uh, we'll build an idol. And we'll, you know, we'll encourage one another, and we'll do our very best, and we'll make sure that he's soldered together at the joint so he doesn't fall apart. And then we'll we'll nail him securely to the wall so that he won't fall over. And of course, an idol nailed to the uh, wall, he can't go anywhere or do anything. He can't speak. He has he has nothing. The idol is is nothing. And they're putting all their energy and effort in, into building this idol, and they're putting their their hopes and their dreams and their future and their salvation uh, on on something they're they're putting together with their hands and they're having to prop up. And that's going to save them from Cyrus, they think. And verse 29 says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And you can see that there. It's quite comical to us in the 21st century when we see people acting like this and thinking that a metal image can save them. But are we any better than them when we say, we just need to get the right man in office? We need to get the right person to, uh, to, to be the president or the senator. Or, or the justice, if we just had our guy there, he would save us from the, the things that we see going on in our world. That could, uh, having the right person in office could make our, our nation a great nation and, and make it like we want it to be or think it should be. And, and our nation can save us. See, You see, what we're doing is putting our hope in human beings or we're putting our hope in, in, in our nation. But our nation is going to come to an end. I know that's kind of blasphemy around July 4th coming up, but we're we're not going to last forever. There's only one kingdom that's going to last forever, and that's the kingdom of Christ. Putting our hope in America, putting our hope in politicians, or putting our hope in anything else for that matter, putting our hope in our own works to save us, our own self-sufficiency, it's going to fall short. It's the same as propping up an idol. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it just right. We'll prop it up against the wall, and that's going to save us from the trouble that we are going through. We turn to positive thinking like, like these idolaters when they said, be strong. Oh, you can do it. You've been diagnosed with cancer. How would you feel if somebody said, you know, you're going to be okay? Okay. You're probably not. Both my parents died from cancer, and it would have been terrible to go in and say, "Oh, it's going to be okay. You know, you can, you can do it. Just be strong." That's empty and foolish. And when we try to, to turn to these strategies, these empty strategies that we have in our lives in order to cope with our troubles cope with our difficulties we're just like these idolatries when we're completely stressed out about life and you know sometimes we turn to escape we just numb ourselves on tv or worse pornography sometimes we anesthetize ourselves we we drink alcohol we eat food to make us feel better some turn to their own strength. They they take up a cause for change or they vow to do better next time. If I just was better, then these bad things wouldn't happen in my life. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. Well, of course, the whole point of this passage is to trust the Lord. Look at verse 10. 8 through 10. We'll... we'll read that one. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God has his purposes for his people. If we're his people then we know he's got his purposes. And his purposes are good purposes, even though they might be difficult. Even though we might think, what in the world is God doing? He's going in the opposite direction of what I would think that God would want to go in my life, with my life. He's doing something completely that looks completely crazy to me. But God knows what he's doing, and we should trust him. And ultimately, he's going to conquer all our enemies. Verse 11... You know, the first passage, the first we just read, talks about God choosing us. He's he's, he's sent his son to die for us. He has gone to the greatest length in order to to make us his children by becoming a human himself and bearing wrath for our sin so that we could be part of his family. And we're his, and he's not going to throw us to the side if he's done that. That's the first thing he says in verses 8 through uh, 10. Then in 11, he talks about how he's going to conquer all our enemies. Yeah, there might be enemies that seem to have the upper hand at points. You know, they might win certain battles. But the war is already over. He's already victorious. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. We're going to go looking for our enemies one day, and there's not going to be any enemies to be found because he's going to conquer them all. They will all be gone. Christ rose from the dead. He conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death. They no, longer have, uh, they no longer have us in bondage. We're no longer slaves to sin and death. And those are great enemies. And then, of course, the church today has lots of enemies, and we know in the end he's going to come back and conquer all those enemies. And we also have this reassurance in verses 14 and 16 that God is not finished with us Fear not, you worm, Jacob. First he calls him a worm. That's not really a compliment. You know, he's he's talking about their smallness, insignificance, inability to do anything for themselves, like a worm. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord your Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make uh, make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall win of them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. God's going to transform them to a from a worm into a threshing sledge. Now a threshing sledge was a wooden platform that had like metal teeth on the bottom, metal blades, or a way to cut, and they would run over the uh the, the the weed or the, the straw on the ground and break it down in smaller segments so that when you went to winnow it, you know, you throw it up in the air and the, the wind will blow away the bad stuff and the wheat kernels will fall back to the ground. That's what's going on here. He's saying Israel's going to be like this huge threshing sledge. It's just going to mow down everything in its path. You know, people think the church is going to go away that the church is, gonna, that is, is just going to fade into non-existence because it's irrelevant. But that's not what the Word says. I will build my church, Jesus says, and it's going it's to conquer all. The church is the kingdom of Christ on earth, and it's going to grow and become stronger, and it is throughout the world. We might not be seeing it where we live at the moment, but it's going to conquer all. We're on the right side. When we're on God's side, when we're in Christ's kingdom. And then finally, God is going to bring a transformation we could we could have never imagined. Look at verse 17 and following. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I the Lord will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So The picture that you get there is a desert waste, and God is going to transform it into a lush forest an amazing, impossible transformation. But God can do that, and He's going to do that. He's going to give us a new heavens and new earth one day where we will dwell together. That's the Christian's hope. That's what we look forward to. And that's what He's doing in the world. That's His ultimate purpose. That's why He sent Christ to die for sins, so He could build His kingdom up, so there could be people in His kingdom. Christ died for their sins so that they could be Cleansed and washed, and be worthy to be brought into the kingdom, not because of their own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to them by faith. So, as we go through these difficult times, we must put our faith in the Lord. You notice the last statement here: I, uh, they, they will see and know, consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. If you read back through verses 11 through four, through 20 uh, you'll see the pronoun I I will do this I am I I I God is saying I'm going to do this I'm doing this as we face difficulties and uncertainty and worry and anxiety about life let's not let's remember to, to continue to trust the Lord continue to, to hope in the gospel to continue to remember the promises of God and, and what he's doing in the, in the world or, or to trust that he knows what he's doing in the world even when it seems like it's not going in the direction we would like for it to go or think it should go. Continue to put our trust in him. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And if we're his people, then we can trust him and he's going to fulfill all those promises for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it is to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would take these scattered words that uh, I've brought but, and, and that your word would shine forth and shine through. Lord, we pray that these words would impact us and help us to have a greater faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.